why don't you introduce yourself to anybody that's watching or listening what's your name tim kearns uh born and raised in akron ohio i joined the navy at the age of 18 about the same time you did you were a little bit older than me but uh we went through sub school together and uh i'm still active duty i've been in for just over 27 years uh, I've been attached to five different submarines all out of Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. I've done several shore duties, a uh, little bit of time on the East Coast, but the majority of my time was spent in Hawaii for the last 27 years. How does that happen? How does someone get to spend 20? How does Uncle Sam get to pay you to live in Hawaii for 27 years? Uh, a little bit of luck, a little bit of timing, <laughs> and saying the right words. And um, up until I made Chief E7, I. Uh, I honestly felt like I was underappreciated where I worked at at the time, but everybody outside of where I worked at said, I want you to come work for me. And it was real easy uh, to stay there when, when people knew who you were. And I would tell them, hey, I'm up for orders. And they would move pieces around to, to align me so that I could stay there. In Hawaii. Yeah. I wouldn't say it was so important. I was willing to travel just about anywhere. But once uh, once my wife and my kids were born it i wanted some stability i didn't want to be moving all over the country and having them change schools every couple of years and it was great so uh my oldest son he did uh half of his kindergarten year in virginia and we moved back to hawaii and he was able to finish all 12 years plus his freshman year at college in hawaii which was great most people don't don't stay in one place that long yeah no kidding no one does. I've never heard of anybody staying in one location as long as you have. Yeah. Well, also too with the submarine force and me being tied directly to fast attack submarines, there were really only four places I could go: Hawaii, San Diego, uh, Norfolk, Virginia, and Groton, Connecticut. And if you're going to be limited to four places, why not go to tropical paradise and stay there as long as you can? All right. Well, that's fair. Where are you originally from? Akron, Ohio. It was my town before it was LeBron James's. <laughs> He, he, I remember that. I remember you. He became more popular and more famous, but I would venture to say my job's a little more important. There you go. So, all right. So you, why did you even join the Navy? Let's talk about that. I, I, we're going to bring this back so that people that are listening, sure. like, why is Kirk just interviewing another one of his shipmates? And this is why. What did you do with us this week? Uh, I followed you guys around. I had my eyes open to the opportunities that are on the horizon for me after my time in the Navy's done. Right. Um, why did I join the Navy? Well, hold on. So let's tie back down. Every year we try to bring to DCAC live, the conference active duty folks, right? You were there in your master chief uniform, right? Your khakis. And, and there's other people we've done that to before in the past as well. And I think it's important to take some of the senior and you know senior enlisted NCOs and senior officers and bring them in on active duty while they can and and be exposed to the industry that's called mission critical yeah and let them understand how it works um that way when you are in your final stretches of being active duty and you're exploring what you're going to do when you get out there could be you know you get into energy or finance or healthcare automotive manufacturing retail there's a million things but data center should be definitely something that you guys all should be considering. And I'm hoping that you... For, for, for sure. So a after this week, uh, I'm, I'm a true believer. And so many of my friends I see get out, they try to latch on to what they know and what's comfortable and safe. And that would be 
companies like Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, um, and they're still tied in with the Defense Department and stuff. I, I really like the idea of breaking free from this after doing this for almost 30 years and going into something else. And um, I, I was nervous about that before this week, and I, I still want to learn more about the industry, but I, uh, I'm i anticipating the future, and I'm looking forward to it now. And I I don't necessarily feel like I have to take that safe step to, to work for the defense contractors and still try to do what I've done for the last 30 years. I think what you're going to get is a lot of people that just want to survive, right? So you're coming out of the military, and you're like, I uh, I need to make sure I have something with some sort of stability because that's what the military kind of, although it's a very volatile and kinetic or dynamic job that you have, you know, the posts that you live on or something like that, seems there's a lot of stabilization around some of those things. So it's it's ballistic on one side and static on the other, right? Yep. And and for you, we've known each other since, I mean, we went to submarine school together and I figured uh, you need to come look at this because you're stationed at Naval Station San Diego, right? Or Naval Base San Diego. Point Loma. Point Loma. And, and in your role as a Master Chief, you have exposure to a lot of enlisted folks. There's thousands of military people transitioning out every month and always has been it's a healthy thing you have people like jesse kendrick retiring or something right so we're going to be putting new people into the military every month and every month we're going to have a very significant number of really highly qualified and talented people that are leaving the military every month how do we figure out how to maybe do a more proactive approach to guiding a certain percentage of those people directly into our vertical let's say 10 percent of those people let's Let's say 2,000 people a month are transitioning out. If we get 200 of those people exposed to the data center industry, that's huge. Our industry needs as many qualified, talented professionals as we could get. And the trades and colleges are no longer just a, a we can't sustain our growth. There's too much pent up demand for, for talented labor in this space. We need more of that, which means we need the leadership of the military to help us. Uh, but the, the groups that you work with already and the networking that happens with senior military people I, that, that's getting your foot in the door with getting the word out i i've referred a few people to you over the last last 10 we've hired a few years. we've sent some of your you've referred people that we've directed to other companies to hire right yes um now now that i've seen this firsthand i'm gonna i'm i'm gonna kind of kick it into full gear where i'm finding the quality people that that i know that happen to be around me and i'm gonna continue to push them your way uh, honestly, I, I, so when, when fleet and family support center out in San Diego does a, a hiring conference, uh, routinely you see it's, it's the standard players, the Raytheon government contractors, government yeah. contractors that come to these. And I don't really see a whole lot from the private sector that comes to these hiring conferences to look for people. Uh, maybe we could figure out a way to crack the nut and get you guys a little booth set up where you can come in there and, hey, come work for us. I, I think that'd be the best way. Um, two weeks from now, I'm going to be attending TAPS class, and that, that's uh transition out of the Navy. Uh, maybe if, uh, if your company could get tied in with that and just, just be listed as a reference – put your name up on a PowerPoint somewhere. I'm sure somebody's going to reach out and say, what is this? And yeah, it might, might, all you have to do is really let us attend one of those simple conferences and let us stand next to all those bigger contractors, but let us put up our own booth 
I'm not, I mean, we'll definitely take part in that thing, but we'll also take over that because we'll excite so many people about the, the data center industry. I mean, I did a podcast with Dean Nelson yesterday, who's a big name in our space too. He's just, every professional organization or, or industry has celebrities and Dean's one of ours. And he's like, Kirk, I'll go to any base with you guys you want to do whatever you want to talk about technology if it's gonna help bring more veterans into our space. He founded iMasons and that's a commitment he has to veterans as well. So I'm like, I'm like, I'll take you up on that. So we need to go to San Diego. You know, I wanna go to San Diego and host a hiring conference off the base. Well, we tried. We tried to have AG come out, but it was uh, it was all in the throes of COVID, so we didn't get much. much yeah, it was an awkward time. I mean, look, much traction. Timing was wrong. We probably didn't put enough horsepower behind that. When we do do it, well, we're going to go out to San Diego and we're going to do a like DCAC live. Right, was a one day. On day one, we had it bifurcated, where we had a golf tournament for a nonprofit. It was a charity golf event we do every year. During the day, Dean uh, Nelson, Infrastructure Masons, and Enchanted Rock got together and hosted like a, a geek summit during the day for those non-golfers. Not everybody golfs, but we'll do a golf tournament somewhere in you know San Diego, close to the base. I have a whole team of people for DCAC that'll track down a golf course, secure it, lock in 144 golfers, which I think is the max we could get, and and we'll probably sell foursomes to that to companies as well as. Make it to where they, you know, they only get three tickets. The fourth ticket goes to maybe an active duty sailor or soldier or airman. And we'll bring, you know, people out on the golf course that day, do some sort of networking that night and have technologists from our space come up and talk to and evangelize and explain to a couple hundred people from the fleet or active duty from, you know, the Marine Corps and Camp Pendleton or whatever. And we'll explain to them the data center industry. We'll promote it months in advance. And then on day two, we'll make it a hiring conference. We need you to help us get tied into somebody at the base that'll allow us to promote it, like with a one-page PowerPoint presentation or, you know, we there's gotta be a platform, the, the platform of the podcast so we could get onto the post without being there, right? And you could send a link to a podcast to the fleet and you have sailors that are listening to this thing left and right. They're like, now I know what to do. You didn't know what to do until you came here. Yeah, It's your job to go back now and explain to everybody what Show this amazing industry is all about. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. So why did you join the Navy? And uh, I really want to tie this together to why you want to join data centers when you're done. So go ahead. Why did you join? So I, I was an athlete in high school and I, I really... What sport? Uh, soccer and baseball. My dad said I was too small for football. Uh, I, I really wanted to go to college. I, I had it in the back of my mind that somewhere I could be a professional athlete. Uh, I could not get a college to come look at me. I went to an inner city school that was known for football. And if you, you didn't say that you played football, being attached to the school, no, nobody really cared. Uh, my I broken home. My parents got divorced when I was 14 years old. My grades weren't the best. And I knew I wasn't going to get into college on an academic scholarship. And uh, Akron, Ohio, what wasn't the, the best place for a young man to really, really find a solid career and it's in the middle of the Midwest and not a whole lot there. Uh, by the age of 18, I realized I needed to get out of there because there, there was a drug problem and, and the broken home stuff. And I, I, I just wanted to go. So uh, two months after I graduated high school, I was on a van up to Cleveland, Ohio to the MEP station. And the next day flew out to boot camp in August of 95. Crazy. Um, 
part of my high school, it, it was interesting. I went to a high school that was split. It was half vocational and half, uh, half college prep. And my sophomore year of high school, you got to sample all these different vocations, uh, auto, auto body repair, uh, computer aided design, uh, electronics. I, I really latched on to the electronics and I spent half of my junior and senior year, half the school day was spent in an electronics lab building transistor radios, uh, learning Ohm's law, things like that. I, uh, I, it actually gave me an advantage when I joined the Navy because uh, the job that I chose to do as a fire control technician, I ended up doing all the basic electronic stuff again. With minimal effort, I was able to pass the courses and pull down straight A's and really seemed a lot smarter than I was. Uh, but I ended up being the number one graduate and kind of got pick of orders. Um, I, I wanted to stay in Connecticut because I had never really left Ohio before I turned 18 and Connecticut was the next place I lived. Uh, lost my orders though, because I caught mononucleosis while I was in, in sub-school and they gave my orders to somebody else and shipped me out to Hawaii. No way, I didn't yeah. know that part of the story. Because I knew that you wanted to stay there because your then wife, Sandy, yeah. was from Rhode Island, right? Well, there was that, uh, my, my, the patriarch in my family was, was really sick and not doing too well. And I wanted to stay close to him. Um, yeah, I actually, I had orders at one point to come to the Memphis with you. Ooh, you should have, cause John Titano was an FT that probably went to school with you and Titano came to the Memphis with me. He's probably the one that got my orders. He, he no doubt is night. Look, good dude. I stood in his, I stood in two of his weddings. Awesome guy. <laughs> he, I brought him into this industry. He worked with me as a PM at Eaton. Yeah. I, it worked out for me. Uh, going out to Hawaii as a young man, I was 20 years old when I showed up, up to, out there. Uh, for the first four four years or so, I was in the Navy. I was I was hell bent on just destroying my life. Uh, I got put around a bunch of people that put me back on the right track and pushed me in the right direction constantly. They saw something in me that I couldn't see in myself. Uh, I look back and every day I, I, I think in my head that I, I'm grateful for the people that were around me that, that made me want to be a better person. And one, one of the biggest ones is my wife. Uh, after I got married, I realized I wasn't living for myself and I had to support her. And that, that was where I made the decision to reenlist for the first time. Did um, you have like any chief? So, or like I had a chief that had, it. I, if I didn't have this one chief, who knows what would have happened to me? Because I was, I was one day, you know, doing really well and was junior sailor or something. The next day, being brought back to the boat <laughs> by the shore patrol, zip tied. Right. So, this one guy just kind of understood me. And he blocked and tackled for me the whole time. He'd invite me over for family dinners to make sure I wasn't getting in trouble and stuff. But absolutely, I had that one guy. Uh, he did more for me than anybody else in the Navy. Uh, got me promoted two ranks in one day because he caught some something in my contract that I kind of got screwed over on. He uh, he was the first chief I had on my first boat and again, saw something in me I couldn't see in myself. And he really, really noticed the potential in me for, for future leadership. It was kind of funny later in my career, I almost caught up to him. He, he made E8 right as I made E7 and he ended up retiring uh, a couple years before I went to the, the tactical readiness evaluation. The tree team. Yeah. Uh, the second time. Uh, 
when I finally qualified Cobb, though, he was one of the first people that ran up and said, see, I told you you could do this. Dude, that's amazing, though, man. So don't fast forward over that because there were times where when we were just dipshit junior sailors where I don't think either one of us ever expected to. I mean, I I didn't know if we ran with the type of people that would ever be a Cobb of a boat. You know, <laughs> I figured we were just running with the guys that were – um they loved being in the military but they just loved being junior sailors and like there's a lot of things you get exposed to as a junior sailor at 18 19 20 21 you know yeah. and and it's just an amazing time you get to kind of play grown up a little bit so i was enjoying that maybe too much which is why thank god i had some chiefs that were like hey fell i actually had an xo2 who was former enlisted that for whatever reason like me is enough to be like go fell stay in the, stay the course type of thing you know so you have to have those people that are going to be kind of putting yeah. some resistance on yourself. You, and for me, majority of it was the chief, like the, the, the goat locker was what kept me alive. Probably. I didn't know that as they were putting pressure on me half the time, but looking back, I'm like, man, these guys were really trying to help me out. Thank God I had them. One in particular, right? I had a guy named master chief Bruce Lee. Did you know Bruce Lee? No. He ended up becoming like the command master chief of subbase in New London, but he, he's a legend in, in that area. Everybody knows him. And, I just happened to be lucky to have him, right? He was a chief then. Later, obviously, he retired as a master chief later, but he was a stud. His dad was battlefield commissioned from an uh, enlisted position working for Patton in World War II. And he just had this amazing leadership thing that he was born and raised with. And he, he's had a profound impact on thousands of sailors. But the importance of those chiefs on our careers and our future is profound. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I, I've... Uh, after... The, the way that guy treated me and the way that I, I moved up the ranks, once I, I became a chief, I made it a point to pay it forward. Lead like he did? Uh, yeah, so I, I tell all the new chiefs every year that uh, training for how they are going to be the day they put that rank on is manifested. It, it comes out. It, training for how they're going to be that day comes from every person they've met wearing that that the rank yeah from the day they joined the navy they they look at each person that's wearing it and they pick up the traits they like or they hey i don't want to be like that guy because he treated me like shit or, sure or something like that um i i say words like this and people genuinely appreciate stuff like that and they look back and they say yeah i remember this guy that did this really great thing for me and i, I want to do that for somebody else in the future um I, I tell you that it's been an amazing, amazing ride, and I love everything that I've done. And I wouldn't do it any other way. But how did you go from? Because I remember like you, your traditional boneheaded junior sailor too. You were out there making fun, yet not always the best decisions, like I was, right? Yeah. And I think that there was a time in the Navy that some of those things were almost even they weren't tolerated, but maybe expected. You know, I mean, still get reprimanded, but they're like hey you guys behave be good kids you know what i'm saying they kind of just looked at this as misfit toys but when you i didn't know if you were gonna be a lifer i, I don't think you talked about being a lifer when we first met no honestly i i was dead set on getting out after six years the first submarine that i walked on to i which I, was the it was the uss louisville okay i walked down below and i said wow i'm on a 360 foot long sewer pipe pretty much that's capped at both ends with 150 people i don't know and uh i i don't know if i'm gonna be able to make it through a full four-year tour on this thing 
Uh, I was real nervous about it, and that, that was March of 97 was the first first boat I stepped onto. It was a three-week underway. When we got back from that and I put my feet back on, on solid ground, I had made a whole bunch of friends, and uh, I said, yeah, I, I can do this for a while. Uh, it wasn't until I got married that I really said, hey, I'm going to commit to this, and if I re-enlist once, I'm doing at least 20 years. Uh, shortly after getting to Louisville, though, I got plucked off of there and sent to another submarine. It was just six months after that. I ended up being on the USS Bremerton for the rest of my, my first tour. Is the Bremerton the one that hit the Japanese fishing boat? No. Okay. No. Uh, in 90, late 97, we were pulling into Korea and, uh, another submarine was pulling out and they hit a Japanese fishing boat and they turned us around and said, go take their mission. We got to figure out what happened with this. And we got extended out to sea 30 plus days. That happens. Yeah. Uh, that's where my hatred of chicken came from because <laughs> that's all, all the food that we had left. Oh, well, it's funny you say that. The only time I ever watched my captain fire anybody was our, the chop got fired one time because we were on, we ran out of all other meat, no pork, no beef. It was nothing but chicken for like almost like two, three straight weeks. <laughs> and I remember the captain lost his mind. And when we were pulling in surface transiting and that the supply officer was topside with his sea bag on, he was the first guy to leave the ship. We never saw him ever again. <laughs> so... It's important, you know, that type of stuff. But you went to the Bremerton, and then you went to the tree team after that? No, no, no. The first short duty I took was in Newport, Rhode Island. Um, I thought I was doing something smart, and I was going to move my wife back closer to her, her family. Um, so I chose Newport, Rhode Island. I got to be a fleet liaison as a E5, um, made E6 while I was there. I worked with some of the brightest minds that uh, – the defense department hires to, to put these new computer systems into the submarines. And, uh, I had to translate their, their engineering professor type mind and language into something sailors could understand. I was writing tech manuals for the, the new fire control systems, uh, and doing, doing some fleet training too. I, I still got to go and ride boats. And when they put a new fire, fire control program on a, on a submarine, I'd have to go and ride the ship and teach the FTs how to, how to operate it and understand it. Is that a cool job? I, it was, I, I enjoyed it. Uh, I didn't, I, I didn't so much enjoy doing the tech manuals cause it, I, it, a lot of the stuff didn't translate that well. So I, I found it was a lot more work than I thought it was going to be because of the changes in technology. When I first came in, we were still using 1960s technology with these giant cathode ray tubes. And uh, by the time I was on my first shore duty, getting ready to go back to my second sea duty, we had made a transition to microprocessors and uh, the lowest replaceable unit was the entire server itself. And it, it didn't translate well in the tech manuals and there no sailor really knew how to troubleshoot it i gotcha um i spent a lot of time locked in a vault trying to make sense out of how they just pulled one word out and put another word in even though the 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 stuff that made it up w was nowhere near in relation and you couldn't really fix it by reading through the books and uh spent three years becoming a better at fixing things because i understood how it worked on the inside that's awesome and then so that was your shortage then bremerton and then i went to the tucson in 2004 i got there did uh did you say that you were on a boat with somehow a 
attached to somebody that knew Grayson? Uh, yeah, that, that, well, I'll get to that. That was my fourth sea tour. Okay. So keep so five boats, four sea tours, uh, on the Tucson, I got there in 2004 as a first class, uh, went on deployment almost as soon as we showed up, uh, got in a little trouble in Japan. <laughs> uh, my career probably should have ended in 2004 when I got in trouble. Uh, but I, I was able to get through it and made chief the next year. Um, that was a very eye-opening experience and it was a good tour for me and it was a good place to cut my teeth as a junior new chief and i had a really experienced chief's quarters that that taught me a lot of great things and showed me how to be what i wanted to be eventually i didn't i still didn't know it at the time uh i had no desire to go and run a submarine I, I still was stuck on, hey, I'm just doing 20 years and I'm done. So I left there in 2008, and that was my first tour on the tree team. And I, I actually didn't go to the tree team at first. So for the people that are listening, the technical readiness exam is something that's handed out to submarines. They have to take that before they go on deployments, right? Uh, yeah, they've actually changed the name of it now. It's now called a CRE, a uh, Combat Readiness Evaluation. So what is that exactly? Uh, so the old school TRE that I was part of, uh, it was a four day exam where a team of individuals, you're usually six enlisted and three officers. There'll be a post tour captain, post tour XO and a post tour department head that all go out and you have members from sonar, fire control, radio, torpedo, uh, navigation. Yeah. But you guys are making sure that the ship's capable of going out yes. and the, these are engaged. these are all subject matter experts for the, for their area. They go out and look at every mission set that a submarine can do. Uh, they put them through a series of combat dr scenarios, drills, combat scenarios, and it, it tests their ability to fire weapons, track track other submarines, uh, chase down uh, enemy ships, and it's one of the things that we do to to. Uh, make sure the submarine's ready to, to go over the hill in harm's way if necessary. Yeah. And ships can't, they can't go on those big deployments unless they can demonstrate that they can do their mission, right? Yeah, so that that's one small part of it. There, there's several other things they have to do too. Operational reactor safeguard exams. You have to go through supply inspections, make sure that you have everything you need for the ship. Uh, a lot goes into certifying a ship to get ready to go on deployment. Yeah, so they do a bunch of workups, and then the final test before they're given their free pass to roll is they have to take these, they have to do it or send a tree or a CRE. So those actually come pretty early in the uh, POM cycle, mm -hmm. and the final test is a POM cert where they grab it all together. POM cert is pre-overseas movement certification. And that says you have your pass, now yeah. you guys go on your mission, right? And then was that pretty cool? I mean, it sounds like you got to see a lot of different boats in the fleet and you get to meet a lot of other... Yeah, yeah. I you got to see the means and methods. Every ship is a little bit different. With right? two tours on the tree team, I've ridden every submarine that we have in the Pacific fleet. and, and That's I, amazing. Yeah. That's awesome. How many are there? I mean, uh, 20? There, There's almost 20 in Pearl Harbor. There's four in San Diego. And there's probably about Guam. 16, 18 up in Washington and another four in Guam. So, I, so you're riding boomers too. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Wave boomers, the, the Cadillac of the yeah. submarine force, the <laughs> most comfortable underway ride I've ever had. Oh man. Well, listen, I have all kinds of things I can say about that. Right. So, <laughs> um, when you left, what was your next, when did you take over as a cob? Uh, so 
after I left the tree team the first time, I had a second Chiefs tour because it was really difficult for FTs to make rank. Some of that was self-inflicted, but some of it was because of the job I chose. Um, it took me 10 years to go from Chief to Senior Chief, so I did a second Chiefs tour on a Columbia, and that was one of the, the hardest hardest things I ever had to do in my life. Uh, I was asked to go there by, by the Chief of the Boat. He came down and recruited me, and... I, I, I said, okay, I, I'll leave shore duty a few months early and I'll, I'll come down there. Uh, stepped into a situation where things weren't so good on the boat and uh, there, there was a whole bunch of people that, that got fired for us messing something up. I survived through all this with just getting counseled once and uh, I was one of the, the few, that I'll call it a pillar of hope or beacon of hope and people rallied around somebody like me to, hey, Tell, tell us a sea story about the good times to, yeah. to get us looking forward to something better in the future. Um, it was only supposed to be a three-year tour, and I got involuntarily extended twice, and I was stuck on that submarine for almost five years. By the time I left there, I was burnt out, and I was almost at 20 years, and I, I remember having a conversation with my wife, and I came home, and I said, I'm taking my next shore duty, and I'm going to retire after two years. And she says, I don't think we're ready to retire. And I said, what, what's this we stuff? <laughs> You're not going through what I just went through for the last five years. <clears throat> uh, still, she pushed me. Uh, as soon as I got to my next tour on the tree team, I sat down at my seat and they said, here's your star, kid. And I got promoted senior chief. Um, two very influential master chiefs grabbed me and they took me in a conference room and both of them sat down with me and gave me some of the best advice of my life. They sat down and they said, hey, you're going to go do this cop thing. Are those guys still both actually do you right now? No, they, they're they both retired. Um, but I, I I looked at them and said, why, why would I want to do that? You know, I just got off the worst tour of my life. And both of them said, because you're going to prevent some submarine from going through what you just went through. That's awesome. And that, that resonated with me. And I, I said, okay. Uh, I, I had actually started the cop card probably six or seven times over the 10 years that I was stuck at Chief. And every time I didn't get promoted, I just threw it over my shoulder and said, I'll start over sometime in the future. Uh, after these two talked to me, it changed my perspective. And I actually worked on it, worked on it hard. And I got through it faster than than most people. Uh, I never thought of myself as any kind of great or grandiose leader. Um, when I did my cob board. So people that don't know, that means what? Uh, chief of the boat. What is that? Senior most enlisted person, works directly for the captain, advises him on all matters dealing with the crew, and you actually run the crew. Yeah, so how many people are typically on a fast attack? Uh, about 150. And how many of those are enlisted? Uh, about 125-ish. So 125? Right, 130. So about 125 to 130 report directly to you, and you report directly to the cap. Yes. Yeah. So you run the entire crew. Well, I was still expected to train officers too because there there was wisdom, JOs. yeah, wisdom and knowledge that I had from from the multiple tours that I I, I had where uh, I've seen things that other people haven't yet, and they expect me to sit down and coach people through difficult situations. And uh, hey, that didn't go so well. Let's sit down and figure out how we're going to do it better next time. That, that type of thing. Father, father figure type stuff. The way it was designed when I was in, like, I my first cob was a guy named Master Chief Luther. Um, when he was a chief, my captain, my then captain, Commander Barron, 
when he was a J.O., when he just came out of school, made it to the fleet, didn't have his warfare pen, his first command, he was assigned to Master Chief Luther. The, like, they always had the chiefs assigned to the J.O.s as they showed up to the boat to teach them about the department yep. or the division. And it was very normal. That symbiotic relationship made a lot of sense to me because Master Chief Luther was Commander Barron or LTJG Barron's, and he was the bull ensign or whatever, he, you know, when you show up to the boat, that was his mentor. And then later on, what's the chances that he was the captain you know, he grew through his career and became the captain of the Memphis and Master Chief Luther ended up being a Master Chief on that boat, right? So I got I got a very similar story to Pretty that cool with, story. With, with how it ended up with me. But that's how it works. I mean, it does yeah. work. Uh, so the after I finished my second tour on the tree team, I, uh, I qualified Cobb. <clears throat> uh, they have a tier grading system. I was already over 20 years and uh, still not even sure if I wanted to go do this, even though I got the encouragement of the two master chiefs, I finished my cob board and they have a tier grading system, uh, tier one, you're, they want to find a boat that's not doing so well. And they send you there so that you can fix the place tier two. Uh, it's kind of a, Hey, these guys are middle of the road. Anybody can go there and probably succeed. And tier, I have those backwards. Tier one was the top. And so this is a boat that's firing on all cylinders uh, we'll, we'll send maybe the weaker guy here because he'll do well. Tier two was uh middle of the road and tier three was, Hey, these guys are hurting. Uh, I was graded as a tier one cob. And I remember looking at him saying, don't, don't do that to me. Put you on a hardcore boat. <laughs> yeah. Which they ended up doing. Uh, so the boat I got selected for to go be cob of was the Chicago and they were on some pretty hard what's, times. What's the whole of the Chicago? 721. It's one of the oldest 688s right now. But it's an I class. Uh, yes. Uh, VLS. For, first flight is seven nineteen had the first VLS and seven nineteen through twenty five all had uh, the first iteration of VLS on it, and then they they stopped the whole numbers there for the boomers, and at seven fifty they picked it up again with San Juan or Miami, one of the two. Uh, and they've all been VLS since. Gotcha. So you end up on the boat, Chicago. Uh, yeah. The pick that i got for captain he was actually a jo that was on the tucson with me and as soon as the two of us found out that we were going to be paired together we were ready to do cartwheels in the parking lot that's awesome and we were on the same page from day one uh now the boat it was over in guam before i took it and they had not done so well on a couple of inspections morale was not not doing so hot uh, a lot of people quitting and the boat passed their inspection just well enough to get over to Hawaii to, to go into the shipyard. And uh, me and the captain, I got there in May of 18. He showed up in September. By the middle of 2019, we had that boat as the the premier destination where everybody wanted to go. And it was... Battle E type boat. Uh, we... There's a story why we didn't win that, but eh, I won't talk about that one. That's fine. But it was a good boat, good tour. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. The, it turned into everybody at the schoolhouse, after they saw the way that we handled training for the missions, they said, oh, man, they got their stuff together, so I want to go down there. And we were getting good talent from the schoolhouse that was ready to rotate back to sea. Uh, word of mouth, people heard the boat was doing really well, so I'd get random phone calls and, hey, you got a spot on there for me. And always recruiting. Yeah. People don't realize that you have to recruit even within the military. You're trying to find and collect the best talent that works with the best social dynamics. And build the best team. Yeah. And it's all about team building. Do do that and make make yourself 
I, realistically, you're going over the hill, you're cutting off communications with the mothership, and you're you're floating around as a singular unit for six months at a time. And you want to have the people around you that are going to ensure you get home. Yeah. So I, I was always, hey, you want to you go on deployment with me? Yeah. Let's go have a good time. Uh, through the years, I, I've done nine deployments now. And the last one was as a cob. And it was the most challenging, but still relatively easy. Most challenging because of the position I was in where... You know, I, I'm the person who's supposed to maintain good order and discipline throughout the ship. Uh, and it was challenging because of the COVID environment that we, we deployed in. When we pulled into ports, we were given a 100-yard section of the pier that was 50 feet wide and said, hey, you can't go much further than this yeah, because you're, you're quarantined, you're crew safe, and if you go out and mingling with other people, you guys are going to catch it and we're going to take a national asset offline. So we, we were pretty much grounded to the pier, and it – kept me from pulling people out of bars at two o'clock in the morning to make your job a little bit easier yeah, a little bit but it was still challenging uh because you had to find creative ways to keep people motivated and pushing towards the common goal uh there was one uh one trip where we were pulling into guam and i called ahead and i asked for about 60 cases of beer and 600 tacos to be delivered to the, the pier and I had guys walking up to me because they didn't know any better. They had never deployed on a submarine. But this is the greatest thing ever. Just and being able to have beers and tacos yeah. when you hit the pier. That would be amazing. I never had that. Um, and, I mean, we got we had beer on the pier, and we were able to socialize up there. They usually supplied us with Wi-Fi, and we were able to call home. And everybody seemed happy. We We would find little bubbles that we could... We would set it up where nobody would mess with us, and we'd go out in the field and play a softball or a soccer game just to unwind a little bit and then have a few drinks and a cookout. It, it was it was interesting and very very challenging. Oh, I can't imagine, man. So, you know, going to and then you end up doing what after that? I mean, you've been in for twenty seven years and you've spent uh, most of that in Hawaii, and then yeah, I finished my successful Cobb tour in May of twenty one, and I got orders to. I'm a victim of my own success where I did well as the cob on Chicago. So they said, hey, we got another place where morale isn't doing so hot, and we want you to go there and see if you can help that place out too. And it's a floating dry dock in San Diego, floating dry dock. Uh, it submerges down. They drive a submarine into it, and we lift it out of the water so we can do maintenance to it. Uh, it's a crew of about 110, and th this is a whole new dynamic for me. Uh, this has been very interesting and I've had lots of curveballs thrown at me that I really didn't expect. Uh, but uh, part part of this uh, this this whole change and where they pushed me is one one of the reasons why I'm leaning towards retirement now and transition to to a different field, different world. Well, listen, we talked, and you, uh, I've I've lived vicariously through you through your Navy career. I've got to celebrate every one of your promotions and. <laughs> You know, I remember when you got in trouble in Japan, you're like, I don't think I'll ever make chief now. And I was like, we'll see, right? And you're just a relentless dude. So I don't think I had much, I wasn't surprised at all as you kept going. I was not surprised when you made Master Chief, but I mean, I know how hard it is to make Master Chief. So I- I, I will tell you, I sure was. A, they, I've said this more more times than I can remember now over the last, it was four, three years ago now that I made Master Chief. There is nobody that knew me 
25 years ago. I would have thought. When we, when we were running Screaming Seaman and, and uh, that, that would have seen me in the position that I'm in now. Yeah, but you developed, I mean, you, thank God, had a Chiefs quarters through every start of your career that made sure that they were ringing you in and railing you in and then they find people that they think. I tell you, there were a couple people that I, I, I had it in my mind that they were doing everything short of selling their firstborn child to get me kicked out of the Navy. But there were, <laughs> there were others that overread them and were able to keep me in. So, I mean, the Navy pressure tests us in crazy ways, right? Surface sailors, sub sailors, whatever. But I've been, while you were doing what you're doing, I was in the civilian fleet running around trying to grow my own career, right? And, and I was able to uh, spend all that time just in one vertical of industry, and that's called data centers and mission critical, right? Because I got out in 2000. And I love this industry. And I love it, obviously, enough to where I'm passionate enough to say, hey, Tim, why don't you fly out to Austin? I want to show you something, right? Mm -hmm. And I mean, I... It's impossible for me to explain, you know, what a DCAC live conference is to someone who doesn't know the data center industry or, but I do know that in the past I've had people that are active duty military. I'm like, just come to this. I'll give you a free ticket. Just kind of be in orbit. I want you to come and see what the civilian sector offers. I can't speak for, it's not like a hiring conference or a technology conference that's focused on like IT. It's more focused on building the the home for the cloud right we build so you, you had asked about tony grayson so i'm going to cut you off to yeah. this real quick uh so my captain while i was cob on chicago uh my, his former or his past tour right before he came to chicago uh he was the xo on the providence where tony grayson was the co so that's how you guys had that connection yes okay and uh co xo and cob they're they're, they're they call us the triad uh, we're, we're the three legs of leadership on a submarine and a CO and an XO have a relationship that, that is supposed to be unbreakable. And I mean, sometimes you get personalities that don't necessarily get along, but the captain I had got along really well with Tony Grayson, even though Tony himself said that he was slightly abrasive at times, but he admitted uh, that on his podcast with me. I was like, how were you as a leader? He was, I was abrasive too much sometimes. I mean, but it takes us a, a wise person to be self-aware enough to understand his own blind spots yeah. as a leader. Uh, he, he said he wished he wouldn't have been that way, but uh, he felt it was what the ship needed at the time, and it probably was. Uh, and it made my captain a better leader because uh, my, my captain was never abrasive except with me when, when I was arguing with him saying, hey, sir, we can't do this. And he, he would get short with me, but he would never do it with the crew. Did you see Tony, uh, did, was he on your radar when you were a sailor and you're watching this guy who's a submarine commander talk about, you know, he went to Facebook, I think, first, right? So I had no idea who he was until I was sitting in, I, I still didn't know who he was as I walked up to him at the conference. The only reason why I knew his name is because my, my captain, when we'd sit in his stateroom, he'd, he would mention his name all the time. Tony Grayson did it this way, so I think we should do it this way. And clearly made a strong impression on my captain which i greatly admire and i i look up to my captain really well he's going to speak at my retirement ceremony when when i'm finally done because me and him best friends for life oh, after awesome. after the stuff that me and him went through uh but he really looked up to tony and after i mean tony's kind of like a, a submarine celebrity and sure you talked about the celebrities and your 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 field of influence Tony was for us. And I mean, I only knew him by name because my captain served with him before and got a lot of stuff from him to, to take to his command tour. 
Uh, I did want to talk about that for a little bit too. I'm sorry I cut you off. No, you're good. No, t- I mean, Tony's awesome and he's doing a lot right now. He's doing, he's doing everything he can too to help get as many transitioning sailors into the, into this industry as well. So he's, have you listened to the podcast I did with him? I have not listened to that one. I'm going to, when I go home, I will tell you that the part that I understood the best about the, the conference while I was here, because a, a lot of the stuff is still unfamiliar to me. And I told you the other day that if I actually go to a data center and I see what's built, maybe I'd understand this a little bit more and I want to take a tour of one. Uh, but when Tony was up talking about veterans transitioning and getting hired and uh, I really, I hung on every word he was saying because I'm getting ready to be one of those guys. Sure. Um, he's got a lot of great advice and he, he puts out good stuff. And I, I don't think he's going to steer anybody wrong. We had at this conference, uh, another active duty commander. He was the captain of the USS New Jersey. Yes. And then we had another, um, active duty commander there that was a former submarine captain. Right. And he's on, you know, some deputy staff role for a Commodore or something like that, I think now, but he's also getting out in the next, you know, five to six months. And I was introducing, I brought as many active duty sailors as I could to the VIP event, which is really normal, just held for all the speakers. So that way you could get guys like Chris Crosby, CEO of Compass Data Centers, or guys like Tony, or guys like, um, you know, all of our VIP speakers that are there, like the Peter Grosses, the Dean Nelsons, the Bill Clinton, all those guys we had in orbit so that they can meet these active duty guys because I wanted them to explain themselves to the rock stars of our industry. And the rock stars of our industry are the ones that are like, yeah, we need more of you. So it, it was just, we wanted to make sure that there was exposure to the sailors so they understood what the world had to offer and that, that what they weren't so disconnected from the leaders of this industry to where they could, they could be a part of this industry and contribute in a way that would allow them to be significant in what they do, right? Yeah. And I think that that is something that's important to veterans as they transition out, right? And the reason why I wanted you to come, and that's why yesterday I'm like, maybe I shouldn't have brought you. Not yet, because I don't know how hard it'll be to go back to the fleet knowing that, I'm not saying there's something better waiting for you as you become a civilian or after you retire, but there is something better for you as you retire. It's not like your world ends because you retire. It's just the, it's the beginning of a new start for a new career, really. Yeah, I, I committed to the Navy. I'm still committed to the Navy and I'm gonna push as hard as I can until I finally hang my anchor up for the last time. I still know that there's some, something bigger and better out there for me. And uh, that's going to drive me and, and push me to be better uh, or drive, drive me to the end. Um, but I am not going to give up on the people that I'm assigned to care for. Of course. I wouldn't have thought that. I'm just like, it's hard to um, not get romantic or be really um, – lost in trying to discover your future while still maintaining your passion to be as productive as you can be for your current responsibilities, right? Because you're thinking about what's next. Typically when you're in the Navy, you, if you're re-enlisting or if you know you're going, if you're on year 10 and you know, you're staying for 20, you know, no matter what, you're going to still be within the fleet. And, but when you're coming at the end of your retirement, it's like, what's really next? Because there's no uncle Sam or no Navy that's going to be sitting here laying out the next 20 years for you. You're going to have to engineer your next 20 years yourself, right? Up, uh, up until about five months ago, I was still pushing to go further. And, uh, 
I, I figured I would just ride this wave until uh, somebody told me to go home. Like uh, beyond 30? Uh, oh, yeah. And I, I had the I had the ability to do it. I had the people in my corner that were pushing me in the right direction to say, get me over the top. And they were, they were looking at me to, to take the next step. Uh, I made the conscious decision before, before you invited me to this, that I, I think I'd seen and done enough and it's time for me to go home. Uh, after I made that decision is when you invited me here and it's just reinforcing the idea behind it. And I, I, I know I still have two years and I plotted this out like this on purpose so that I knew I had time to take care of everything that I need to before I transition. I got a, a full slate of things I got to do medical appointments, line up the, the VA and, uh, there's a lot that goes into retiring and it's not like I can just push a button and go. There's more, there's more to getting out of the military than just what the military has to offer. The military does an amazing job of onboarding you into the military, stripping you down mentally yeah. and building you back up to be a contributor to one mission or one unit. And that's the Navy. And they train you well on advanced everything from machines and technology and stuff. They don't do as a, I mean, they do have TAP and they have all these things that they do to help transition you out, but that's not where the lion's share of the focus is at. I think us in corporate America have to help offset those blind spots that exist. So we had to stop because Jesse went and got us some Rudy's tacos. And they are delicious. And you're flying out. So I want to put your ass on, a, on an Uber and get you right back to the airport as soon as it's done. But I wanted you to have some Texas, this Texas gas station called Rudy's that makes some of the best barbecue. I normally... And when, when, you know, some of the industry thought leaders come into town, I pick them up at the airport. I take them to Terry Black's and go get barbecue. It's a really famous institutional barbecue place. It's epic. And then we go from there to, you know, here and do a podcast for a few hours. I'll drop them off at their hotel. And if I can, I'll time it to where, like, Joe Rogan has the Vulcan Gas Company here in downtown Austin. Mm -hmm. It's his comedy store. And there's amazing comics. You, I mean, you go there any night. Doesn't you, even if you don't know who the name of the person is, they're amazing comedians. But he, you, you could see that he's working probably on another Netflix special or something because he's working on new material all the time. So you could go there and maybe see him every week. You know, at least one night. You just have to randomly catch it. And uh, I try to bring people in town when I know that he's going to be in town because the tickets aren't expensive. It's cheap, and you can see him all the time. But normally we come in. I take him for barbecue put him up somewhere downtown take him to see rogan or take him to a nice dinner but you were here for the conference and you're getting ready to get on a plane i wanted to give you some texas barbecue it's good stuff you rolled so um walk me through you know i was trying to tell you hey man i love this industry that i'm in and and months ago i reached out to him like if you know of any sailors transitioning out send them our way right and you're like okay well what's going on you're gonna hire him and i'm like if i don't i'll find a place for him but we were always trying to help veterans back in those days too. We'd call into all the places that we had friends on bases and be like, hey, anytime you know of anybody that's transitioning out, if they decided that they wanted to finish their naval career <clears throat> or Army or Marine Corps, whatever, send them our way and we'll screen them. And if we can't find a role for them, then we'll call a friend or something that will. And we've been doing that for a long time, right? And you've you've sent people to us that we've sent to like Roseden or, you know, yep. we. I think I hired a guy, we hired a guy that, like that Keon, I didn't know that he came from you. He's a Navy guy. He's yeah. on our team. He's exceptional. He kills it, right? And you must say, he's a surface sailor? Surface yeoman, yeah. Okay. So he worked for you at San at, Diego? At the Arco, yeah. Okay, so when he got out, you must have introduced him to someone on my team and they hired him. Uh, 
so I mentioned it to him. So I'm very guarded about the, this little secret. I have been in the past. It, biggest, biggest thing for me was I don't want to send somebody who isn't going to work out or will embarrass me. So I, I the ones that are really good that I could see succeeding in, in an environment like this, they're the ones that I pull off to the side and say, hey, I have an opportunity for you. I call myself a filter, not a pump. And I, I, I turn off the ones that uh, wouldn't, in my eyes, necessarily succeed. Because not everybody's built the same and they're not going to perform the same. <clears throat> Keon was one that I pulled off to the side and said, hey, I have an opportunity for you. Uh, I had him go talk to another guy that I got I sent your way that got hired by, by Rosenin and Keon jumped on board with this because he saw it as a real good opportunity. I, I think we had him working for us like on a temp basis for a few weeks. And then Anthony one day calls me and goes, listen, I want your permission to hire this guy. He's awesome. And you should have to trust me. And I was like, then hire him. And I think that he started for us officially on the clocks, like maybe the beginning of this month or late last month. But been a huge contributor to the team already and it's just another example of the you don't only see a lot of yeomen rolling into the data center space being able to contribute day one minute one but they're he's killing it yeah it's not like he's uh he's some senior guy that's been floating around for years either he he's a he was a second class and just transitioned out well he had everything that we needed <laughs> and that's an example of character right yeah so we try to explain to you hey it's a cool industry Lots of pent up demand for opportunity, and they uh, more importantly they find a lot of value in, in the transitioning veterans. And if you compare the that against the demand for more labor here, knowing that they're running scholarship programs to get people into trades, and you know there's a lot of very sophisticated campaigns to recruit in colleges, and but the military I think has yet to be fully tapped, right? So we're just trying to harness it now. We can't do it all by ourselves, which is why we're getting sticky with a bunch of other companies and saying, let's create a larger collective where we all contribute to this that has a more meaningful or a wider impact on, you know, the fleet or some, you know, Fort Hood or something. We just, there has to be pockets of people that you didn't know about this. You knew me and now you know about this. So now you have to go help, you know, yeah, explain uh, things. Now, now that I've seen this firsthand. What was I'm, your thoughts of the conference? It was great. Uh, again, some things were over my head cause I just didn't understand them. Uh, some things I, I was really, I re resonated with me and, and I understood it. Uh, but now I have a bigger understanding of what's going on here overall. And I realized that I was being too strict with my filter and not a pump. So, right. so I'm going to, I'm going to go back and talk to as many people as I can get my hands on and not necessarily looking for a lower quality of person, but realize that there's opportunities for people with different skill sets and abilities. Well, why don't we go out to Naval Base San Diego and host like a, a happy hour for 50, 100 people and bring in all these chiefs and bring in the wardrooms, you know, bring in wherever you want, bring in the goat lockers and we'll put all these commanders. I'll bring in all these technologists. I'll bring in some of the biggest names in our industry. I'll see if I could get like, if you think I wouldn't call someone at Microsoft or Google or one of those groups or a bite dance or something, Uber, I'll bring in those groups. I'll bring in, I'll call CEOs of data center owner operators. We don't need a lot. We just need five, six people to stand up and be like, this is what the future is for our industry. And this is what you should think about if you're not going to stay in the Navy. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm all for it. Uh, I'll go back and use my, my field of influence and, and see what I can do. Sure. So going from where you were before you came to this conference this week, 
to now, what did it do to help you understand what this industry has to offer and what it has to offer you personally? Uh, so with just making the decision to retire, I, there's some terror that comes with that. I'm absolutely scared of the next step. This definitely calmed some of that down because I, I realized that these are just people too. And a lot of them were in my shoes not too long ago. And they're going to, they're going to understand and help me through the whole transition process. Uh, so some of that is gone and I feel a lot better about, uh, my future. So what do you do about that now? Uh, I still got time on the books, so I'm going to go back and, and keep pushing and plugging the way that I was. Uh, my official date right now is August 31st of 2024. Uh, with, with terminal leave and stuff like that, I'll probably retire at the beginning of the summer and be done and start the transition in summer of 24. Uh, but I, my, my heart's still on what I'm doing, and I'm going to give those guys my all until I'm done. I think that's amazing. But for those that – what I want is – I'm not trying to recruit or take away from the Navy. I'm trying to capture those that have already made a decision to leave and that it's not in conflict with the Navy, right? We don't want to do mm -hmm. anything for that. But I also know that everybody that's getting ready to get out of the military feels like you are feeling it two years from being out, which is the fear of the unknown. I think in many cases, the longer you've been in, even the more anxiety it could it could put on a sailor or for soldier sure this is all i've known since i was 18 years old yeah so leave my home. entire adult life this is the only job i've had but what i try to tie back into is you joined you could have joined the marine corps the army the air force the coastie but you picked the navy for a reason and yep. then in the navy you picked submarines for a reason and then on a submarine you picked an ft for a reason and none of those things are because you had experience in any of those things it's because that's what you felt like your passion was drawing you towards. What I'm trying to do is recover that again. I want you to feel the same way you did when you were 18. And I want you to, instead of looking at different branches as your option, looking at different industries as options. And then within those industries, you could find something, maybe like there's, like in the Navy, you have aviation, you have submarine, you have you know, surface ships and you have warf you know, naval special warfare. There's different groups you could get into. In this space, there's different groups you could get into in the data. So getting in the data center industry is like getting into a branch of service, but you still need to figure out what you're going to do. Am I going to be infantry? Am I going to be in supply? Am I going to be logistics? Here you have, am I going to work for an enterprise customer? Like uh, an enterprise customer being like someone in the global Fortune 1000. Am I going to work for a data center owner operator? It's like working for an airline industry. It's an oligopoly. There's regional players in every pockets, but there's really a certain number of airlines that represent a majority of air travel, right? And then you have, uh, I mean, within that, you could get into finance. You could get into operations. You could get into project management on construction, program management and operations. You could get into... So uh, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned all this. And I'll, I'll tell you, this is one of the biggest things that I am looking forward to because for the longest time I was expected to start off as a jack of all trades. And as you get higher and higher, you're supposed to be a master of all trades. And I'm looking forward to being laser focused on one thing that I can truly become a master of. Yeah. Uh, for the longest time I've had to have an extensive amount of knowledge about a lot of different things. And, and it's, it's exhausting trying to keep up with all these things and as they change and, all the new guidance is out and we have to go learn this over and, you know, build your team to make sure that you can do this. Uh, as you're mentioning each of these different fields, I don't, 
on a submarine, you know that everybody depends on everybody or we all don't come home. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not saying this business is any different, but, uh, I can be the master of this, still help somebody out over here because I, I, I might happen to have some knowledge about that, but this is my job instead of my job being everything and knowing what everybody's doing. Well, I mean, at your role too, you know, there's a lot of, there's huge voids of leadership. Yeah. Crush those tacos. <clears throat> it's the best I could do since I have a limited amount of time before I get you out of town. So I, um, I think that there's a ton of opportunities. And I think that the way that people should view this is that it's just getting into the industry first. And then once you're in here, um, it's like, Hey man, I want to play baseball. Cool. Get on the field and let's play. And then later on you're like, well, I think I want to pitch or I want to be, you know what? I feel more comfortable in the outfield or Hey, let me yeah. play third base, you know? And, and you really start getting better. I mean, we all start as kids playing sports and then we're not really assigned to a, a role until we discover or someone else discovers that, Hey, not only do you seem to really enjoy that role more, but you're better at that than you are the other positions. And let's hopefully coach and guide you. That's what chiefs do in the Navy is they yeah. throw you on the field and then they say, who is a natural goalkeeper? Who is a natural striker? Who is a natural defender? And then they, they help them discover that that's maybe what their purpose is, is that form of an athlete. And for us, we're just trying to play that role now and saying, like, I, I think that we talk in big strokes and that's a, good thing but we're always like how is there such this massive chasm why, why is there so much disparity between what we know to be real and available and those that don't understand it how do we connect that and and one of the themes i do on all my podcasts at the end of every podcast i always ask everybody like what do you tell people you do because it's hard to explain what you do in this industry you know i'm in the data center industry 90 percent of the world's like what is a data center right so we have to do a better job because it's a very niche industry still in its infancy and reinventing itself twice as fast as any other vertical of industry because of every other vertical of industry. You know, as us consumers demand more out of our cars, we're creating more high performance computers within every vehicle. And, and those features that we demand as, as customers are having um, massive impacts on IT capabilities and requirements, which have an impact on what goes into a data center, because even the cloud goes into a data center. The cloud just means someone else's data center. So the, the, this is another piece that I've gotten over the last few days. Uh, so people would ask me, hey, what's this conference you're going to? I said, oh, it's about data centers. What? What is yeah. that? Mm -hmm. And I would do my best to try to explain it based on the snippets of conversations I've had with you over the last couple of years and things that I've picked up along the way. Now that I've actually been here, listen to almost two full days of of uh speakers talking about uh everything that goes into building them uh the interesting things everything from buying property to getting the power to run them right and uh the different things that tie into this i understand it a little bit better and i can go back and explain a little better now instead of somebody saying he doesn't even know what the hell he's talking about so that's what i want to do is we're going to make base visits DCAC and Overwatch will go do base visits with other partners of ours, like the data banks and the IESs and Rosadins of the world. And, and we'll go to these bases and we'll bring in them. We'll bring in industry thought leaders that are on the enterprise side. I'll bring in data center owner operators. If you could help me fill up a room with 50 to 100, you know, officers and senior enlisted, or um, I'll, I'll bring food and beverage to that room and put up a presentation in a deck and we'll start evangelizing to these veterans when they're two years out and let's start conditioning them and educating them because there's no, there's no colleges that offer a degree in data centers. You go 
get a degree in law or medicine or finance and all these things, but there's really nothing. Although everything that you do at some point can be tied back to a parallel within the within this industry. Yeah. So my community is the veteran community. My commitment is to invest money in my own costs into going out and explaining this. I think it's just no one else. You have groups that hire military, but they do it for profit, which means they're not doing it for a service, you know, back to the community. It's business first, community impact second. For us, we're community impact first, meaning that we'll do it even if it costs us money as a cost center, because it's like investing into our future, knowing that it'll pay dividends in the long term. It's at risk. There's no guarantees that people are going to grab on. But the other thing that's different between those other groups is I went to Orion and Bradley Morris conferences, but there would be companies from every vertical of industry, you know, and I'm only bringing in companies that are looking for data center people, people that will function within one and only industry. Now, there's a thousand different opportunities within this industry, but it's only this industry. I'm really focused on serving the industry that I love, which is data centers and 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 providing a service to those that I love even more, which are the veterans or the active duty military that are gonna be veterans. So I need your help with your chiefs and all you guys to help me. If it's two months, three months, we gotta plan in advance, let's fill up a room with a hundred people and bring in enough leaders that I'll show up with a team of people that are really smart and they'll be able to put pictures and everything on a, on a deck and we'll walk everybody through the four quadrants, let's say, that if we were to break this down and codify the industry, that way everybody understands what's available. All right, we we can talk offline about <clears throat> logistics and how we're going to figure all this out, but I, I I can definitely get those people and put them in a mm -hmm. room for you. That's the goal, man. So, listen, I'm uh, sensitive to your busy schedule because I know you have to go, and there's a lot to unpackage in your whole story. And this ain't the first time. I'm mean, the last time we're going to do a podcast, right? You have a lot of time left in the pond and. Yeah. Between now and then, I want to bring you back maybe in six months or something after we have some progress made and let's report on that. Let's talk about okay. the things that we're doing, the impacts we're making. And then, you know, there's going to be things we're going to have to adjust and pivot around as we learn what's working and what's not. But I wanted this podcast to be a little bit about your own personal narrative so that people that, I mean, if you, you've been on the pond for a long time and if you rode every boat on the Pacific fleet, you know a lot of people and you're a master chief. And to those that don't know this, in the Navy, that's an E9. It doesn't get any higher than that as a senior enlisted. That's quick, the highest rank. Quick math problem for you. This, this was put up that kind of put this all in perspective for me, and it really made me realize where I'm at. There's 330,000 people on active duty in the Navy. Uh, 21,000 of those are chiefs. That's 6,000 are senior chiefs. Only 1,200 are master chiefs. Really? Yes. That's crazy. So less than 1%. Which is fantastic. So yeah. you represent the top 1% of the Navy, which means that you should have a pretty significant influence to move the needle on certain things that we're trying to do. If not you, then the people that you run in orbit with as well, right? So for sure, at some point, you know, I may call on you and be like, give me the master, give me Mick Pond's email address. I'm only joking. I'm sure I could find it <laughs> if I Google it. But like, why not? Why wouldn't we try to, we can't leave it to the military to solve these problems for us. But we know that there's a disparity between where they train us to transition out and what the world as a civilian has to offer us. That void is what creates anxiety, which leads to depression or, you know, accelerates PTSD variables that lead to something significant that could end ultimately in someone hurting themselves. Do you understand how this ties back to our purpose as a business as well? Yeah. So this proactive engagement method allows us to get ahead of things to help we're reducing the suicide rate on the back end as people are transitioning out and reharvesting them, retasking them, retraining them, and giving them a new purpose, a new mission, a new command, a new tribe. But let's work on this 
a year up the stack. Now we're working on it two years up the stack. And that's why I wanted people to see it because you'll have sailors that have been working for you the next two years. There's going to be a lot of people in your orbit and they're going to come to you one day and be like, I, I loved the Navy. They're like me. I hate, I did not get out of the Navy because I hated it. I loved what I did. I just knew that I would never be where you're at. I'm not like you. You're, I, I would have, I never knew I was going to be where I'm at either, but I just knew that <laughs> I was, but coming, you have raw, relentless skill. Right. I mean, in spite of yourself, you're a savage. So I knew that you would be fine. My thing is you were passionate about the Navy. You loved it. You, you were going to do it. I was not as passionate about it because I felt like I checked that box and the party was over for me. I'm like, what else would I do that I didn't do in that one? You know, I went on three deployments. I had an amazing time. What else was there? I did Northern Ice Runs, Counter Dark Interdictions, and Med Runs. Yeah, I tell you, I didn't love it at first. I, I was dead set on getting out. And after doing the job for a few years, I realized I, I was pretty good at it. I, I could see myself doing this for longer than the one enlistment and the marriage changed my perspective on everything. And uh, as I got higher and higher up the ranks, every time I, I had a new challenge and I overcame it, I said, oh, that was pretty, pretty interesting. And I, I think I can keep going. I, there's, there, sure, there's always more challenges, but I don't think any greater than running a submarine. Oh, of course. I mean, that's a multi-billion dollar ship with a lot of lives and souls at risk so and i was trusted with that national treasure and no, brought, it, brought it home safe it's amazing that's why man it's an epic thing there's not a lot of cobs right i mean that community is even smaller my thing would be this we're going to continue to do this as often it could be every few months it could be every six months whatever you can do based on your commitments to the military but i'll say this i'll fly out and let's talk about the progress that we make let's make this a theme that um, we track, you know, the message and the narrative as it iterates and improves and refines itself over the course of time. But right now, before you punch out, what would be the, the first message that you would leave any of the people that are listening to this? Because there'll be people throughout the fleet between Norfolk and San Diego and Pearl and everywhere that are going to be maybe downloading this before they go on a deployment and they're going to be getting hopeful or inspired by something that this active duty master chief's talking about having seen firsthand you know, you've been to one of these industry conferences and you know how massive this industry is. And now you understand that there's an unlimited amount of opportunity and pent up demand for these people. What's the message you would share with them so they could start chewing on this and processing it themselves? So even though I, I was in communication with you for a long time, uh, I still remain focused on the job at hand. And I didn't do the homework that I probably should have to, to look into the background of everything that goes into uh, your industry, I probably would have been smarter and I would have known before I walked through the door that there was definitely opportunity here. And I walked through the door the other day, still, I mean, my mind's still on things I have to do in the Navy, but I, I would have already had something in mind where I could align myself with what I want to do as I'm thinking about your in industry. So if people actually do a little bit of homework and probably Google either some of the companies and get the backstory behind it. Um, or just reach out to us. We have a whole staff of people that all, we have marketing propaganda, so to speak, that we're working on like three by five cards that they could look at and be like, oh, okay, so that's what they serve at this restaurant, you know, type of thing. Yeah. Because that's what I'm going to be working on with you. Between now and the time you get out, you and I will be working on information that is sailor proof. Things that they can understand, <laughs> right? Because we move high speeds, so sometimes we're not, you know, we're not dragging through everything and picking up everything at once. But my message will be this: 
you just came to a, one of the top three data center conferences in the industry. And we had 24 of the largest data center operators in the world that are there. Some are publicly traded mission critical REITs. Some have recently been taken you know, private for $15 billion, $10 billion, you know, M&A uh, uh, takeovers. But you also had, you know, multiple large hyperscale and enterprise end users from Apple to Meta to Google to TikTok to Uber, you name it, all the way down the line to, you know, Travelers Insurance. You know, I mean, there's, there's a lot of enterprise customers that were there, you know, Bank of America. But there's a lot of these people that build these hotels that rent suites out to Fortune 500. And those people, instead of renting suites with beds in them, they get these huge voids that they could roll in all their IT stacks on so they could run their e-commerce and they could run their back of house finance applications and they could do their, you know, streaming of video and eyeball caching of content and things like that. That's what those things are. We just build these hotels that serve as the home for the cloud. And it's an on-ramp to the cloud, right? And and I think that we'll just continue to work on smaller narrative pieces that people can absorb and ingest so they could understand the whole landscape of that. There truly is uh, something for everybody here too after after hearing all this for the last couple of days uh, from from the guy who likes to play in, on computers in his barracks room on the weekends, there's something that he could do for the guy that stands physical security on base, there's something he could do. We've hired MPs, aviation boats, mates, deck div, uh, damage control men, uh, 11 Bravo infantry bullets, Marine Corps infantry. There is literally, your guy, Kayon, right? He's a yeoman and he's crushing it for us, right? And he's gonna have a huge impact on the veteran community and the industry. I, I think Chad's a great story too. We can touch on this one for a little bit because uh, he, he, was, he was sent to shore duty early. E8, right? Yeah, he was an E8 and uh, he, he, you guys hooked him up with Rosenen and he went in thinking he was gonna get an entry level QA job and they talked to him and said, hey, we think you're a little bit better than yeah. this, so we're going to make you a QA supervisor, and we're going to give you a little bump in pay. Oh, yeah. And uh, it, the Navy didn't want to keep him anymore, but I saw something in him, and I sent him to you. And you, you put him someplace where he's happy. The guy calls me once a month and thanks me for the opportunity. And Rosedon is... Love him. Well, listen, Rosedon is the largest electrical contractor in North America. They do probably north of $3 billion annually on top line revenue and they probably build more data centers for what's called famga facebook apple microsoft google and amazon those five companies represent about 80 percent of the market spend in our industry rose then probably builds for all of them and they have the largest impact in this space from electrical contractor perspective and they have the need for a thousand people a thousand people there's plenty of people transitioning on the military yep. that can help fulfill those roles. Chad was just one of the very first that we placed. I even hired, my first Soviet candidate was a aviation boatswain's mate. Um, she was amazing, but she came from an aircraft carrier and came to work for us at the time that had 20 people in a startup. And, you know, we found, you know, at year two, she needed more depth. And she was like, if I told her when we hired, I'm like, if you outgrow us, we'll find you another job. And being able to call the Rosedens, which is a 5,000 person plus organization, probably closer to 6,000, which is about the same size as an aircraft yeah. carrier. And that made her feel more at home because she was one of thousands of people which she felt comfortable with versus being one of, not everyone's designed to go to a startup like ours, right? And that's okay. There's small companies, medium companies, large companies, then hyperscale companies. And whatever these people need to align to to feel comfortable, we're gonna help guide them into those things. But first, let's help educate them on the industry. All right, and I need your help. Absolutely. 
Listen, Tim, I appreciate you coming, and we got to get you to the airport, man. I don't want you to get late. All right? As we sign off, I'm going to tell you that uh, as you as you grow older, there's certain experiences that will set you up for what you do later in life, but it's the people you meet along the way, and I'm so glad that we, we came across each other's paths. Didn't necessarily get along the best when we first met, but uh, lifelong friend I got in you, and of course. I'm glad I met you. I love you, man. So that story is we met in an open bay barracks with like 120 <laughs> guys. You were the big guy and I was the small guy and you won the bunk I wanted and we fought for 30 minutes. We cleared out that <laughs> entire barracks. We Back then they didn't have cell phones, so that stuff would have probably hit YouTube pretty easy. Yeah, absolutely. But, but that's how it works in the military and that's how you build wrong, really strong relationships. So I, I love you. Thanks for being here. It's great to see you. My love to the Sandy and the kids and I look forward to bringing you back, you know, as you're available to talk about how we're helping contribute to the military from the inside now and the outside, okay? All right, I'm gonna go back and put something together and I'll, I'll get a bunch of people in a room where... Yeah, we'll, we'll share, them, share them this podcast too. Yeah, we will do. All right, bud, thanks. Safe travels home. Yes, sir. Later. Mm-hmm.